Father, as we come to your word today, we thank you for it, and we thank you for the work that it does in us. We thank you for the way that it strengthens us. We thank you for the way that it weakens us, that it humbles us, that it convicts us, and that your work of transformation starts not only with an understanding of your word, but with a desire to apply it to our lives. And so we pray that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom you have sent to dwell in us, would give us understanding and motivation to apply this passage to our lives today, that Christ would be glorified in our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 44 today. And we will be looking at the whole chapter. Uh, I was going to cut it in half, but uh, no, we're going to get the whole chapter uh, taken care of today. Chapter 44 of Genesis. You know, when the Watergate scandal broke in the, in the previous generation, 30, 40 years ago, uh, Richard Nixon stepped down as President of the United States under increasing pressure from the public and undoubtedly to, to avoid the embarrassment of, of being impeached and kicked out of office. But there was a man who was recognized as President Nixon's hatchet man. That is, the guy who did all the dirty work, right? The guy who did the stuff that you don't want the president to do because you don't want the president to soil his reputation. So he hires on his staff somebody that you would call a hatchet man to do all their dirty work. And this hatchet man was named Charles Colson. He was one of the group who became known as the Watergate Seven. Uh, The seven people were all individuals who were indicted by a grand jury for their roles in the Watergate scandal. And Chuck Colson was a man who had achieved great success in life up to that point. He had served for a few years in the Marines. He got promoted all the way up to the position of captain in the Marines, Immediately after retiring from the Marines, he was named assistant to the assistant secretary of the Navy, which makes me wonder if he had any assistants who would have been assistants to the assistant to the assistant secretary of the Navy, but I digress. Uh, within a few years, he started a law firm, a very successful law firm in, uh, in, in, the, in the East Coast that's, uh, that grew in power and influence in cities like Boston and Washington, D.C. And within a few years, he left that law firm in order to work in the, president, uh, the, the administration of President Nixon. Now, the world would look at somebody like Charles Colson, who went from being incredibly successful to being publicly scorned, publicly shamed, embarrassed, humiliated, you know, use whatever word you want. And yet we have to remember that when it all came down, when it all came crashing down, that wasn't the end of Chuck Colson. The world would see his life as the greatest of tragedies. They'd say, you know, Chuck was, was a good guy at one point. He, he, was, he was smart, but uh, he lost it all. He had a good run, but uh, unfortunately it, it's gone. And yet it was on his way to prison that Charles Colson was introduced to the gospel and he became a Christian. And the press, of course, had a heyday uh, with his conversion. They, they mocked him publicly, accusing him of using his newfound faith as a way of trying to lighten or or lessen his prison sentence. But years later, in a book that he wrote called Loving God, he'd write this. He said, quote, All my achievements up to this point meant nothing in God's economy. No, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. And it's always incredible to me when when I read a testimony like that, when, when somebody who's so successful, so affluent, so influential, comes to see their life this way. Because there is every inclination within every single one of us to see things the exact opposite, to see things the way that the world sees it. We're so inclined to think that if we work hard, 
if we do well and, and succeed as a result of our hard labor, those are the times when we're most likely to be blessed by God. Those are the times when we're most likely to be used by God. And it's only by the grace of God that a person comes to see that there is actually a greater blessing in the trials that break us, in the trials that humble us, than there is in a life that's so built on self-confidence and so successful and being highly esteemed by our peers. You know, over the course of the past few lessons in Genesis, we've been looking at the way that God dealt with the sons of Jacob, the way that he broke down their self-confidence, the way that he humbled them and was working to turn them from their wicked ways. And with the one exception of Joseph, who of course was sold into slavery and was now down in Egypt as the second most powerful man in the land, with the exception of him, their lives, the lives of the brothers up until this point have been all about them. Their lives have been about their comfort, their, their affluence, their selfish desires, their selfish ambitions. And we've seen the way that God's been using Joseph and using this famine in the land to break them down and to humble them. Even though God had stirred their consciences awake, they really haven't been brought to the point where they're actually forced to deal with their sin. The sin in particular that we're talking about is the sin that they committed against their brother 20 plus years earlier when they sold him into slavery. Now God has shown them, we've seen, He's shown them great mercy upon mercy, but we have yet to see this result in the brothers seeing it for what it is or repenting of their sin. If you remember last week, we looked at Romans chapter 2, verse 4, and we saw that the reason that God is kind to the sinner, the reason that God is patient with the sinner is meant to show him the kindness and the love of God so that the sinner will repent. Well, we haven't seen the brothers do that yet. So as we continue our study of Genesis today, we're going to be looking at the 44th chapter where we will start to see the work of God producing good fruit in the lives of these brothers. And the point of this chapter is that God uses trials to uncover our sin and to transform us. For God's people, when it feels like God is trying to destroy you, it's always the opposite. The truth is that He is working to save you. In the times when it feels like your circumstances are too much for you to bear, they very well may be. But God is using those circumstances to save you. So let's start with Genesis chapter 44. We'll be starting with verses 1 to 9. It says, Then he, talking about Joseph, then he commanded his house steward, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the, in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as it was light, the men were sent away, with, they with their donkeys. They had just gone out of the city and were not far off, when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks, and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then... Could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. So we should remember that in the previous chapter, the men had, the brothers had, had gone down to Egypt to get grain. Jo, uh, Jacob had finally agreed to send them down there with Benjamin, and they were met by Joseph, and they had this enormous feast with Joseph. And so after a night of feasting all night with Joseph, whom the brothers, by the way, still haven't recognized as the brother they sold into slavery 20 years earlier, Joseph and his steward put into play one final test. 
one final trial that they will use to test the character and the integrity of the brothers. So his, his personal assistant, his, his steward, is instructed to fill the bags of the brothers with as much food as they can possibly carry and to return their money to them once again, all very similar to the instructions that Joseph had given them the previous time that they had come down to buy food. But there's one big difference this time, one very significant difference this time, and that is that Joseph instructs that the silver cup is to be placed in the bag of Benjamin. Now there are a few reasons that Joseph takes particular interest in Benjamin. He's not picking on Benjamin, first of all. We need to understand that. He's, he's not picking on him or, or singling him out to be cruel or anything like that. First of all, Benjamin was kept home uh, with, with Jacob the last time the brothers had come down to Egypt to buy grain. And that was probably an indication to Joseph that Jacob had been protecting Benjamin, and that's why Benjamin didn't accompany them, which would indicate favoritism. Let's remember that Joseph, once upon a time, was Jacob's favorite. So he sees that Benjamin is in the same position that he had been in 20 plus years ago. So keep that in mind. Secondly, Benjamin was also his only brother who came from the same mother. Who was their mother? It was Rachel. Rachel. Rachel, the one that that Jacob was willing to work seven years for, and then seven years again. I I mean, mean, he he, he got swindled by her father, by Laban, remember? But it was all worth it to Jacob because he loved Rachel so much. So if you're wondering why Jacob seems to be singling Benjamin out here, don't worry. We'll see Jacob's reasons before this chapter is done, but this is a good start uh, to understanding why Benjamin out of all the brothers. And so the instruction is to put this, this silver cup in Benjamin's bag with his money. And this isn't just any old ordinary cup. Uh, it's more like a chalice. There's a different Hebrew word that gets translated cup. Uh, this is more like a chalice. It's made of fine silver. Uh, there's a significance to that, of course. You remember what Joseph had been sold off for? What had his brothers received in exchange for selling Joseph? Silver. Silver. And so now again, he's using silver to test his brothers. Joseph was, was intelligent. Joseph was, was incredibly calculated in all of his plans here. And so as the sun rises and the brothers are sent home with their bags overflowing with food, they're going off into the distance. And, and they remember you know, how scared they had been to come down there and face Joseph. But now it's all a distant memory for them. They're riding off into the distance, and it's just becoming a further and further memory for them. The brothers are feeling good about their trip. They're feeling confident. They're probably congratulating themselves, we can imagine, on how well they have been received and how well they've been treated by this royalty in Egypt. It must have seemed amazing and so relieving that they were treated so well by him. But as the Egyptian pyramids start to disappear in the distance behind them, Joseph's steward is sent in charging after them on Joseph's orders. It's a bit reminiscent of when Laban came after Jacob and his household, isn't it? But the sense of security that the brothers undoubtedly had was broken. It was a false sense of security. They aren't getting away as easily as they had thought. They aren't getting away as easily as they had believed or hoped. Joseph Stewart is instructed to personally interrogate them, throwing two charges at them which assume that they both know the crime that they're guilty of. The first being repaying evil for good. Hold on to those words because at the end of this story, we see Joseph seeing that God has repaid good for evil. They have repaid evil for good, though. That's the accusation here. And secondly, stealing this silver chalice. So this this chalice, this cup, is said to have been used by Joseph for the purposes of divination. 
And if you're not familiar with what divination is, one, comment, one commentator defines it like this. He says, quote, Divination is the practice of foreseeing the future or discovering hidden knowledge. End quote. Uh, that wasn't really an unusual practice in that day and age in, in, the, in the, uh, the Near Eastern world. Uh, pharaohs were known to have practiced it. Uh, powerful people were known to have practiced it. But we've never seen Joseph actually doing this. We've never seen Joseph practicing divination. And given that the Mosaic Law, which would be given much later, obviously, prohibited divination... And since the times that Joseph has foreseen the future involved God giving Joseph the ability to correctly interpret dreams, just on a couple occasions, it's probably best for us to see this as just part of the disguise. This is just part of the test, part of the, part of the ploy to say that he uses it for divination. It's so that they still think, wow, this is a powerful man. So the important thing isn't necessarily what the cup did, or what it was used for necessarily even, but the fact that it was Joseph's and it had been apparently taken. But the brothers respond immediately and kind of aggressively to the charge that they had stolen anything of the sort. Look at their words in verse 7. They say, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. I just kind of laughed when I read that. Because basically they're claiming... Don't you know what great men of integrity we are? It would be so far from us. It would be totally out of character for us to steal anything. After all, their argument goes, why would a thief voluntarily return these valuables only to steal lesser valuables? How do you argue with that? That's, that's a rock-solid defense, right? That's an airtight defense. It's good logic. It wouldn't make any sense at all. But the brothers are so certain that they haven't stolen anything, that not a single one of them would have this chalice, that they offer to, ex- uh, to accept the most extreme punishment if they're wrong. The person who stole it will die, and the rest of them are going to be slaves for the rest of their lives, if one of them has it. Such confidence. Confidence. Can we, can we talk about that for just a minute? Because confidence isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's okay to be confident. What did these brothers put their confidence in, though? Their ultimate confidence. Their ultimate confidence was in their word. Right? They, They had done exactly what they had promised to do. What they are saying here is absolutely true. Everything that they have said in relation to Joseph, has been absolutely true. Their word was good with Joseph. Their word was good with their father. And when they they, they promised to bring Benjamin back safely, their word is good. And so they have confidence in their trustworthiness, their, their word. And so with that said, they also had confidence in their integrity. Forget for a moment that Reuben had had this incestuous relationship with one of Jacob's wives. Forget for a minute that they had planned to murder their brother 20-something years earlier. Forget about how Levi and Simeon had gone on a genocidal killing spree. Forget about how Judah had enlisted the services of a prostitute who turned out to be his (laughs) daughter-in-law. This stuff was all in the past. This isn't them anymore. At this point, they do seem like just a bunch of honest guys, right? But the rap sheet that these guys have is extensive, which makes it kind of funny that they would insinuate that stealing this cup is just totally out of character for them. Far be it from us, we would never do that. Really. But the point is that they had confidence. And they actually had good reason to have a sense of confidence or or optimism at this point. But the problem is this. Their ultimate confidence, their supreme confidence was in the wrong things. It was in themselves. It was in themselves. It was in their goodness. It was in the fact that their word could be trusted. It was in the fact that they had acted, in this situation anyway, with moral uprightness. But their ultimate confidence was not in God. At least not yet. 
And so God isn't letting them off the hook yet. He's not done with them. He continues to use these trials to break them and transform them into men whose highest, whose supreme confidence is not in themselves, but is in God alone. And this applies to them just as much as it applies to us, doesn't it? They needed it just as badly as we need it, right? To have our ultimate confidence, not in ourselves, but in God. Because things go wrong. You can be a trustworthy person. You can be a morally upright person. And things can go wrong. Nobody said life would be fair. And so our supreme confidence can't be in ourselves. Our supreme confidence has to be in God, who is unchanging, and who has promised that He is causing all things to work for the good of His people. That being their growth in the likeness of Christ. Let's continue, verses 10 to 13. <clears throat> so he said, the, the servant, the, the, the steward, so he said, Now let it also be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then they hurried. Each man lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. He searched beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. There's irony here in the fact that these brothers, in, in offering this deal, in, offer, in, in saying, you know what, let the person who, who did it die and will be your slaves, there's irony in the fact that they have voluntarily condemned themselves to the very thing that they had feared so greatly all along. But the steward kind of has a counteroffer. He, he responds to the offer of the brothers to all become slaves and for the guilty party to be put to death by offering a far more reasonable consequence, that being that the guilty party will be his slave and the other's may go free. Now we can imagine, as the, as the brothers line up, we can just imagine how smug and how proud and how confident, maybe even arrogant, the brothers were as the steward starts going through their bags one at a time. Reuben and Levi, pff, no sweat they're thinking. right? They're, they're good people in their own eyes. Simeon and Judah, they're next. They smirk, they laugh, knowing, hey, we're, we're men of such great integrity. We, we didn't do this. The steward continues working his way down the line. He looks through the bags of Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, and they joke with the steward as he's going down. We can imagine, hey, buddy, you're just wasting your time. I'm sure that Joseph has some better things for you to be doing back in your city. But finally, last of all, is Benjamin, the youngest of the brothers. And he comes to Benjamin's bag and he fills, he, he lifts up the, the full bag and out falls the chalice, glimmering in the heat of the Egyptian sun. And he holds it up as if to say, What's this? And the hopes and the confidence of the brothers are vanquished, they're shattered. Now, while we, as the readers, know that they're innocent here, we know that all of them also are guilty, with the exception of Benjamin. All of them are guilty of a far more grievous, far more heinous sin. So we find more irony in the fact that the very brothers who took the coat of many colors from Joseph so many years ago by Jacob, they tore it to pieces to make it look like he had been attacked by an animal. Now they're tearing their own clothes. You see that? They're tearing their own clothes as they are smitten with grief to the depths of their souls. Do you see the change that's taken place in them? Do you see that Benjamin was the favored son? There's no question about it. He was Jacob's favorite son. The only son that he had left from his beloved Rachel. But the brothers have come to terms with the jealousy that they once felt 
toward the favored son. This is what Joseph was doing when he gave Benjamin the blessing the night before. This is what Joseph was doing when he gave Benjamin five extra portions of food at the feast the night before. He was testing them. He was testing them to see what they would do when the favored son received favoritism. When Joseph was the favored son, they wanted him dead. As Benjamin is now the favored son, they would rather be dead than let him be killed or taken as a slave in Egypt. And this is one way to see when God is working in a person's life. Just one way to see uh, that God is working in someone's life. By the way, they respond to trials. Because for God's people, when it feels like God is trying to crush you, when it feels like God is trying to destroy you, the truth is, He's working to save you. Remember that. The next time it feels like your circumstances are too much to bear. They may be too much for you to bear. The Bible doesn't say God won't give you more than you can handle. That's a myth. He will give you more than you can handle. Because He doesn't want you to trust in yourself ultimately. He doesn't want you to have supreme confidence in your own self. He wants you to have supreme confidence in Him. So yes, He will give you more than you can handle. He will humble you. He will break you. And there will be times where it feels like He's trying to destroy you. But the truth is, He's using those circumstances to save you. And that's what's happening here. God is working through all of these circumstances to save His people. To save the brothers. For those who are in Christ, listen, we, we have been declared innocent. That's called being justified. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. But we must remember that there's more to salvation than just being saved from the penalty of sin. That's a past event if we are in Christ, but there's something going on right now. In the present, God is saving us from the power of sin in our lives. And of course, the day will come when we will also be saved from the presence of sin. But you know what? Every single one of us, if you think about it, every single one of us underestimates exactly how difficult it is to save a person from the power of sin. None of us has any idea how difficult it is. How far away we are from true Christ-likeness. We just have no idea. But God does. And God, and only God, can work all things toward that end. Which is fortunate for the brothers, by the way. And fortunate for us. Let's continue. Verses 14 to 17. It says, When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But he said, far be it for me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So it starts with the brothers returning to the city, returning to Joseph's house, and falling down in grief before him. And of course, this is just another fulfillment of those dreams that God had given to Joseph so many many years ago, which the brothers, by the way, apparently have no recollection of. If you remember how mad they got, how angry they got, how much they hated Joseph because he so arrogantly shared those dreams with them. They apparently have forgotten about those dreams. They don't see that that's what's happening as they fall down before him, as they bow down before him. 
So Joseph keeps the ploy going. He, he scolds them saying, what is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can practice divination? Again, part of the ploy. But the brothers don't question that. They don't doubt his ability to do so. They're, they're in a jam here. And there's no easy way out. As far as they can tell, there's no way out. But this is where Judah once again demonstrates a growth in godliness as he once again takes the lead, just like he did with his father when they needed to go back down to Egypt. And he says something very interesting in verse 16. It looks like it contradicts itself. Because in one breath he proclaims their innocence, and, in the, and, and yet he immediately after that confesses their guilt. Look at what he says. He says, how can we justify ourselves? What does that mean? How can we prove ourselves to be innocent here? And then he follows that up immediately by saying, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. How do we prove our innocence? God has uncovered our guilt. The implication here is that the brothers know that this is related to what they had done to Joseph so many years ago. No, they're they're not guilty of stealing this silver chalice. They know that. Joseph knows that. God knows that. God isn't uncovering some sin that isn't even there, right? No, God is uncovering a sin that they have never in their lives dealt with. They have just kept it going. They've kept this lie, this whole story going for 20-something years about what had happened to Joseph. Keeping up this story that a wild animal killed him when the truth is they hated him so much they were going to kill him, but they decided, well, we don't profit from that, so we'll sell him for 20 pieces of silver. They've never dealt with their sin in their whole lives. So the offer was for all the brothers to go free and for only the guilty party to stay there as a slave. But Judah refuses the deal, insisting that all the brothers will stay together, even if that means they're all going to be slaves. And again, Joseph vetoes the idea. No, only Benjamin is going to stay. The other brothers can go in peace to their father. Go home to your father. He's got to be starving by this point, right? They ran out of food. So he's got to be hungry. Get home. Be at peace with your dad. I mean, all the conditions here are right. Joseph has, has set up all the right conditions for the brothers to show their true colors. Are they going to betray the favorite son? Again? Are they the same people that they were 20-something years ago? I mean, they they sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. That was the bait last time for, for Joseph. But now the bait is their own personal freedom. Who in their right mind is going to turn down an offer like that? Right? See, their sin has been kept in the darkness of their hearts for so long. They've grown so hard in their hearts They've almost forgotten about it. They've almost forgotten about it. But God has not. God's remembered it. God hasn't forgotten about it for one second. But here's the beautiful thing. And pay very close attention to this because this is very important. Here's the beautiful thing. When we forget about our sin, God doesn't. When we forget about our sin, God remembers But when we remember and confess our sin, God forgets. God forgets. When we forget about our sin, God remembers. When we remember and confess our sin, God forgets. I will forgive their iniquity, says the Lord, and and their sin I will remember no more. The truth is, friends, that apart from God's grace working in our lives, we would bury our sin in the depths and the darknesses of our hearts and we would forget about it and we would never deal with it. But no secrets are hidden from God. The depths of our heart, the darkness of our hearts, it's all laid out before Him. He must bring it into the light in order that we may confess it, that we may turn from it before it's too late. And if you've ever been confronted with a situation like this, you know that if there's a sin that you've tried to keep in the darkness and God is bringing it out into the light, 
you know how painful that can be. You know how scary that can be. But for God's people, when it feels like God is trying to crush you, trying to destroy you, the truth is that He is working to save you. Not just save you from the penalty of sin, but to save you from the power of sin. And these men, the grip that sin had on their hearts has been loosened. Just a little bit. As they're forced to deal with their sin, they're changed. Earlier, they, they had wondered when they were on their journey home from Egypt the first time, they wondered what God was up to and they asked, you know, what is this that God is doing to us or what has He done to us? But now they are acknowledging what God has done to expose and to uncover their sin. And this is the first indication that their relationship to God has been radically altered has been radically altered. Now they're seeing Him not as the judge, the righteous judge who can't wait to condemn them. No, they're starting to see, them, starting to see Him as a Father who loves them so much that He would break them from their sin. As painful as it might be, He would give them the strength to break free from their sin. He would uncover it. He would force them to deal with it once and for all by turning from it and repenting of it. There's also a change in their relationship to others here. The brothers are all willing to be self-sacrificial now. They have the option to just take their freedom and go. Go home and be at peace with their father. They've got this option to just forget about Benjamin the same way that they had forgotten about Joseph so many years ago. I mean, come on. These guys are scoundrels. They, They can come up with some kind of story about what happened to Benjamin, can't they? Of course they could. But this is what grace does. This is what the grace of God does in a person's life. It changes our relationship to God and it changes our relationship to others. The person whom God is transforming starts to treat others in accordance with the fact, with the reality that others are created in the image of God. And they wouldn't mistreat, they wouldn't abuse, they wouldn't hate an image bearer because they wouldn't abuse or mistreat or hate the one whose image they are bearing. This is why, by the way, you can't be a Christian and be racist. Because all people are made in the image of God. And to hate somebody else, regardless of the reason, whether it's because they're too tall or because they don't have hair or because they have a different skin tone than you do, doesn't change the fact that they're an image bearer. And so hating that person is hating the image of God. It's also why you can't be a sexist. Men and women are both created in the image of God. They're both image bearers. It's also why you can't be in favor of things like abortion. Because God won't let us feel at peace about mistreating or or murdering a fellow image bearer. For the person who feels at ease about harming or hating an image bearer, all I can, all I can really say is examine yourself. Are, are you sure that you're in the faith? Are you sure that you're in the faith if you can hate an image bearer knowing that really you're hating the image of the one they're bearing? Why would God allow you to be comfortable hating His image or assaulting His image? I can't see any reason that he would. That seems totally unbiblical to me, totally illogical to me. And God doesn't let the brothers feel at peace about the sin that they had tried so hard to just forget about. He brings it out into the light forcefully so that it can be dealt with. And as men who have been transformed by the grace of God They're finally ready and willing to deal with it. Let's continue with verses 18 to 32. Then Judah approached him 
and said, O my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears, and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, Go back, buy us a little food. But we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother is... Uh, is with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant said, Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me. And I said, She is, surely he is torn in pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. So Judah privately privately approaches Joseph, speaking in his ear. And he starts, very accurately, recalling all the events that led up to this point. But notice that in the midst of retelling the the story, these events, Judah confesses to the lie that they told their father about Joseph being torn apart by a wild animal. So Joseph now knows what happened after he was sold. He clearly expresses the love that Jacob once had for Joseph and now has for Benjamin and how the loss of Benjamin would be too great for their father to bear, too great for for, uh, Jacob to bear. But we should also notice that Judah acknowledges that his father's favoritism for Benjamin is the reason that Joseph needs to let Benjamin go. That connects to the next idea, which is that the grief that their father would have would be too much for the brothers to bear. The grief that would kill their father, they themselves would take to the grave. It would burden them to put this much grief on their father. Why? Why would it grieve them for the rest of their lives? Because these are now men who care about their father. We can't say that about them up until this point. But the fact that the brothers now love their father, and even more so, the fact that they love their father's favorite son, Benjamin, even though he's favored, it's amazing. It's it's a transformation that's that's taken place. The the grief of their father, were he to lose Benjamin, would, would become their own grief because they're not the selfish people that they were just a a chapter or two ago. The fact of the matter is that the brothers now hate what they had done to Joseph so many years ago. Do you see how huge that is? Do you see how much change was required for them to come to this point? It's repentance. They repented. They'd forgiven their father for the times that he had shown so much favoritism toward Joseph and for the favoritism that he's shown toward Benjamin. These hard-hearted men had been broken in a glorious and, and graceful way. God had used all these trials to uncover their sin, to expose the sin of the brothers in order to break them of their apathy toward their sin. Know this, friends, if God has intervened in your life to uncover and to expose your sin, you can't run for it from it. You can't run away from it. It's going to catch up to you. The secrets of your heart are laid out before God. You can try to forget about your sin, but God will not until 
you remember it and deal with it by confessing it and repenting. God sees it all. God knows it all. There is no way for you to change that. God's grace will always, always uncover and expose sin and iniquity. But it is not to harm you. It's not to harm you. It is not to condemn you. It's to cleanse you. It's to cleanse you the same way that a good surgeon, if he finds an infection in your abdomen, isn't just going to put a band-aid on it. No, he's going to get in there and he's going to dig and he's going to find it and he's going to find it all. In the same way, God deals with our sin completely. Not just a band-aid. He's going to uncover it all so that you can deal with it all. And that's exactly what God has done for the brothers, with and for the brothers here. But God does more than just save them. Just like He does more than just save us. He also changes us from being selfish people. That's the natural man. To be selfish, He changes us from being selfish people into being selfless people. If you think about Christ as the example that we are all working toward by God's grace. It's impossible to become more like Christ without also becoming less selfish. Let's continue. Verses 33 and 34. Judah continues. Judah says, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord. And let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father, if the lad is not with me, for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father. So Judah has kind of a final plea here. These are like his closing arguments if you liken it to a court case. It's like what, what he wants to say before he gives Joseph a chance to rule, to, to, to hand down the final sentence. But his plea reveals a change that's taken place in him that is naturalistically and humanly inexplicable. He offers to be the one to take Benjamin's place if Joseph will just please let Benjamin go home. His final plea is is to allow him to be a substitute for Benjamin. If you remember, at one time, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and the people are worshiping this golden calf and they're stirring up God's wrath against themselves. And God declares that He's just going to wipe them out. And Moses says, no. Instead, take me out of the book of life. Take my life instead. Very similar. If you remember the book of Philemon, Paul writes this book of Philemon, shortest letter uh, that he wrote, very easy to read in one sitting. You can probably read it in two or three minutes. And he's dealing with a slave who had ended up in jail, but he met Paul while he was in jail. And he finds out, Paul finds out, that while he was a slave, he stole some things from his master, who was a Christian that Paul knew, that Paul had led to Christ. And so Paul writes this letter, and he gives it to the slave to to bring back to Philemon. And he says, anything that he owes you, put it on me. Same thing. Very similar things. Very similar circumstances. Very similar willingness to sacrifice yourself as a substitute for another. And that, friends, is the Spirit of Christ working in people. We should remember the words of Christ when He said, John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. You see, it would be one thing for, for, uh, for Judah, who has only in his life sinned against the Lord continually up until this point. It would be one thing for him to offer himself as a substitute before this Egyptian ruler as the sinner that he is, and that is a spectacular thing. That is a, a very heartwarming gesture. 
It's an admirable thing. But how much more astounding is it that the Lord Jesus Christ, who never once sinned, who didn't have a rap sheet like Judah does, like Moses did, like Paul did, how much more astounding is it that the Lord Jesus Christ, who never once transgressed the law of God, would offer Himself as a substitute before the Father, in the place of all who would repent and place saving faith in Him. It's unimaginable. It's it's unfathomable. And while this offer might seem too good to be true, this is the only hope that the sinner has before a holy and righteous God who must punish all sin with the full outpouring of His wrath. And that is to surrender any claims that you have to your own righteousness or your own goodness or your own moral uprightness and to believe that only Christ's moral uprightness and only Christ's goodness and only Christ's righteousness will stand before God. And so it must be credited to you. It must be given to you if you are going to be declared innocent before God. If by faith you are willing to bid your own sense of goodness or morality or self-righteousness goodbye, by the grace of God, by faith, the Lord Jesus Christ will give you His. Judah and his brothers needed to reach the point where they saw their sin. They saw the ugliness of their sin for what it was so that they could hate it so that they could confess it, so that they could turn from it. We have a couple minutes. I want to do something kind of fun. Turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And I want us to see this passage in light of Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Let me read it to you very quickly. It says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That tells us some very, very important things. Number one, it tells us that the person who is declared innocent, the person who is justified, does not work for it. They don't don't get declared righteous by working. Judah's rap sheet eliminated the possibility of him being declared righteous. If he was going to work for it, uh, too late. Too late. The second thing it shows us is that the justified one trusts, or if you were to translate it literally from Greek, it would, it would say faiths. It means to, have to put faith in, in, in something. Judah had to throw himself entirely upon God's mercy. God was going to have to be the one that he was supremely confident in. He would have to trust God. The third thing is the justified one trusts not in himself, but he must trust in something outside of himself. He must trust in God. He must trust that God will show him mercy. And the fourth thing is the justified one must see themselves as ungodly, but believes in him who justifies who? Not the righteous not the morally upright, the ungodly. This is the type of people that God helped Judah and the brothers to become. This is what He caused them to become by His grace. It's how He rescued them, not only from their sin, but it's how He rescued them from His holy wrath. And it's how He saves sinners today. And yet, Christianity, again, is much more than just being saved from the penalty of sin. That is necessary. That is beautiful. But when a person is saved from the penalty of sin, it's only the beginning. It's only the beginning of a glorious transformation in which we're saved not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin in our lives. When we're saved from the penalty of sin, there begins this long an often painful process of ongoing personal transformation. And that will involve brokenness. That will involve learning humiliation. 
And that will involve the purging of any misguided supreme confidence that we might have in ourselves or in our own ability to do things that are pleasing and useful to God apart from the grace of God working in us to change us. These are things that only take place by the grace of God. He transforms us. And sometimes it is painful, but it is always gracious. It's usually gradual. So gently, He transforms us into people more and more who reflect the goodness and the righteousness and the selfless love of Christ. See, as Judah and the brothers came to confess and repent of their sin by the grace of God, so too must we. As Judah was transformed, like the brothers, from being a selfish man into being a selfless man, giving us a forward reflection of the vicarious atonement of Christ for sinners, so too we must be transformed into selfless people whose lives reflect backwards to the life of Christ, to the work of Christ, to the selfless love of Christ as displayed on the cross. Judah owned up to his sin, and he submitted himself fully to the authority of Joseph, and in a fuller and greater way, if we are to be transformed, we too must own up to our sin and submit ourselves fully to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ over our lives. That's how transformation takes place, and that's what transformation looks like on a practical level. God's greatest work is seen in the regeneration and the transformation of His people. And if you're in Christ, it's happening in your life every single day. Every single day. In every single circumstance. Easy ones, difficult ones, everything in between. So may God show us that His victory comes through our defeat. His healing comes through our brokenness. And that our finding Him comes through losing ourselves. God is for those who will humble themselves before Him. So we can be assured that there is no circumstance in our lives that God is not using to transform us from being dead and useless sinners into people whose lives can be used greatly by God. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for Your patience and Your kindness toward us. That even while we were sinners, You sent Christ to die for us. To take our place. To bear the wrath that we deserve to bear. Thank You that You would take the righteousness of Christ and credit it to all who would trust in Him. And so we pray, Lord, to that end, that we would trust Him, and not only that we would trust Him, but that we would continue growing in our trust, our trust of Him. Thank You, Lord, for the easy circumstances that make us like Him, but Give us the right perspective in difficult circumstances too. Knowing that change is never easy and changing to become like the Holy One is such a long journey. And it can only be done by Your grace, by Your power. And so we pray that You would continue working toward that end in our lives. Turning us from selfish people into selfless people who display the glory of Christ in our lives, in all that we do, for His glory. In His name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. 
If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.